0: Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now, your host, Saul Marquez. And welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the outstanding Dr. Chris Morris, he's Associate Director for Digital Health Innovation at NYU Langone. He's an internist and digital health champion focused on creating strategic development partnerships with health tech startups as a means to transform healthcare. He's uh, particularly interested in emerging telehealth technologies that reinvent the primary care experience in this era of value-based care. We've got to start looking at things that also impact physician wellness, as well as their ability to reach the increasing number of patients. Christopher is an internal medicine uh, physician and HIV specialist at the medical center where he's at, and he's focused on digital innovations as a means to transform healthcare quality and access. He's most interested in using emerging telehealth technologies to transform the primary care experience. So it's a pleasure to have Chris on the podcast today. Chris, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure. Anything that I missed in your intro that you want to mm-hmm. chime in on?
1: No, just in terms of all spot on. I think I have, in terms of my clinical practice, I have two. I have an outpatient uh, component to it, where I re- I have my own practice where I uh, really try to be innovative and and push what can be done in the outpatient setting. And I'm focused on HIV care and uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis for primarily for HIV at-risk males in New York City. Uh, And then additionally, I work as a hospitalist at NYU. So I'm really kind of in the thick of it, both in the outpatient world and then within our uh, hospital, uh, Tisch Hospital um, at NYU Langone.
0: Very cool. So you're really kind of getting a good look from both ends. What got you into? Yeah, three
1: hundred and sixty perspective.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, that's pretty cool, actually. So, as we think about you know value based care, we were we were chatting a little bit before we we got started here. It's important to to consider some of these things from the perspective of an internist, but also somebody taking care of patients in outpatient settings. So, I'm excited to dive into that with you. But what what got you into healthcare to begin with?
1: Mainly being a uh, teenager uh, without really much clarity as to what I wanted to do and uh, grandfather got uh, very ill went in for open heart surgery and spent a lot of time in the hospital when I was 16 I thought wow this looks pretty cool the doctors were so impressive I idolized them and I'd always figured I'd, I'd grew up in the New York area I always figured I'd go work on Wall Street, like a lot of my friends. And I was like, "Wow!" I but I never really wanted to sit in a cubicle, or or I always wanted something with a little bit more meaning. And it kind of just the spark lit right when I was uh, 16. And I haven't looked back since. That's awesome, man. That's
0: awesome. And now you you're taking yeah. it to the next level with uh, how to change healthcare for the better. And so curious, what's on your mind as a hot topic that needs to be on every medical leader's agenda?
1: Yeah. The reason I even kind of broke from my clinical career was just being completely frustrated with all the inefficiencies, especially within the outpatient care world. At least at NYU and other hospitals I've been at, they've really worked on streamlining efficiencies and whether it's in terms of their supply chains or just the patient flow and and different analytics to look at. Whereas the outpatient world is still very, uh, at least in a lot of health systems that are undergoing uh, rapid expansion, very disorganized, inefficient. You have providers that are you know, still practicing on one model reimbursement-wise or just even culturally, traditionally-wise in the way they want to do things. And you have another provider doing something radically different. And then the patient experience and outcomes as a result can be... Dramatically different, and I was in residency, seeing outpatients, and just was felt I was seeing so many patients that I did not need to be seen in the office. And I was just trying to think of so many different telehealth technologies that were emerging at the time. Now they're pretty ubiquitous in different ways that we could work with payers and the providers and new digital health technologies to really get rid of the show of having to go to a physician's office for every kind of simple follow-up when the only reason that we're trying to have patients come is the bill under the current healthcare insurance system. Mm -hmm. You know, there has to be ways that you can just be able to check in with your physician on an app or even a AI-enhanced chatbot-type doc or, you know, nursing assistant or something like that. And get reimbursement or get something for having that interaction. But in the end, I forget what the exact stats are, but, you know, the average process of a middle class person going to an outpatient care appointment between taking off work, finding parking and is I want to say it's roughly around one hundred twenty five dollars. This is maybe like 1994, 125 dollars in addition to the copay that they're already paying at the outpatient clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to losing on on average two hours uh, right. a day, so that's a huge time loss. That's value away from society in general, and it's also money that is doesn't need to be lost in the healthcare system. So using, I think. Kind of stepping back into your original question, what technologies need to be incorporated in order to improve value, or you know, what's the next big thing? I really think it is breaking down the outpatient model and using technology to kind of—I want to say blow up—but really just rethink what an outpatient clinic even looks like for the next decade or next two decades.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective, Chris. And as you know, I sit here listening to your awesome um, perspective on on you know the outpatient setting. I can't help but think of banking and how mm-hmm. today I never go to the bank ever. No, you know I never go to the bank. Yeah. Not, you know, unless it's something crazy like buying a house. I'm buying a house right now. You know, then you have to show Congrats. up. Congrats! <laughs> thank you, thank mm-hmm. you. And it's just it's something that could happen in healthcare too. The challenge is the, is the reimbursement structures, like you mentioned, right? And having those traditional structures catch up with what people expect today. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, with the size of, of healthcare deductibles today, you could say maybe there's a, a smaller market, not the entire, you know, healthcare population, but a smaller market that would want to take advantage of these and use, you know, flexible spending accounts and their deductible payments to get more convenient care. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I completely agree, and I think we're hopefully heading in that direction. I would say it's challenging for I work for an academic medical center. It's very challenging for us to be agile in certain mm-hmm. aspects of kind of offering that type of care to that one like subset patient population that is interested in that, when, you know, all of our current resources and clinics are, are geared towards that traditional model of getting someone in and just knowing what that diagnosis, the ICD-10 code is, and kind of being at the patient provider level, agnostic of the insurance or something like, you know, and some other things. So we've been, and I think a lot of health systems have been reluctant to kind of completely jump in and develop that, that type of model when, It takes a lot of resources to develop it and the long term play, especially in this political environment. You don't know necessarily what HHS's kind of thought process is going down the road. You know, I think that the same could even be said with the Affordable Care Act and the way new ACOs or the fourth generation ACOs have had much more. Leeway in what they do with the money and their reimbursements, and especially yeah. in the use of telehealth and new technologies. But those models definitely take increasing financial risk, and there's still uncertainty this many years after uh, the, the formation of the ATO model with all the consolidation that's been undertaken. If it still makes sense to leverage a part of your health system in order to, to develop these new technologies and not worry about reimbursements as much at the beginning.
0: No, I hear you, man. That makes a lot of sense. And so let's, let's get a little granular here. Let's dive into some of the stuff that you've done. I know you, you've got a portion of your responsibilities as health tech and how you can use that. Can you give the listeners an example of how you've made an implementation or started a project that has uh, created results or improved outcomes?
1: Sure. I think the best, Example, based on what we've just discussed, is my work that has been in parallel with NYU, but it technically is a private company I own that really sought to improve the experience of pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV at-risk males in New York City. And so I was trained in Boston. I was mm-hmm. starting to see a ton of patients coming in for Truvada prescriptions, which for the listeners that that don't know you, basically, Truvada is a uh, part of an HIV regimen, and if you take it once a day, it it significantly, significantly reduces your chance of HIV uh, transmission if during sexual intercourse. So I was having young, very, very healthy people come into the clinic, booking half hour after half hour. And I said, this this is ridiculous. I can't have all these young professionals are coming in and kind of they were taking off work every three months and sitting in the waiting room for hours. And I felt yeah. so bad because I know I can do that and making them kind of have small talk in an exam room while basically I was just trying to get them in to build them. I was, yes, I was trying to engage on their risk factors and you know, making sure everything was largely all right, but I could have done that with many different modes of technology as well if the reimbursement was there. So I started my own practice solely focused on this. And what I did was moved to Manhattan and I developed a, partnered with a company to develop a telehealth platform. Mm-hmm. It was very simple, video-based. There was a payment system at, on the back end, intake forms, pretty commoditized stuff at this point. And I knew that if I was going to do a full assessment uh, remotely. I really wanted there to be different aspects of a physical exam included, especially since I was partnering with HIV patients who are at potential risk for having different types of infections or, or side effects that maybe you have to be a little bit more attuned to that a video-based visit uh, wouldn't suffice. So I searched the market for all the cool add-ons, deliver digital stethoscopes, otoscopes that look in the ear, and the blood pressure cuff really worked on the the user interface and experience in terms of how all these gadgets can connect via Bluetooth to a platform. This was kind of pre care coming onto market or several of these other companies that have now nice, shiny uh, digital extension to the digital um, examination tools, but I was able to put together something and I put it in a box and I called it uh, black bag. It was my big experiment and I used Uber's courier service in New York city. Nice. So when so- someone signed up for an appointment, I would kind of, this black box would, would have all the testing supplies. It would have all the instruments I needed to do a remote physical exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it included a tablet. And so I would do visits and I still do visits. I kind of, reduced the number I do over the last uh, year. But so I'd see the patient, walk them through the physical exam. They'd put it all in the black box again, and then just send it back to me via Uber, which was scheduled to pick it up at the end of the, the appointment. And uh, I charged, I tried to arrange for insurance reimbursement, even not out of debt work, but it just wasn't, the reimbursement model just wasn't there at this point. So yeah. I just charged a flat 50, 50 bucks fee basically made 10 bucks a visit, but really just enjoyed the experience of trying to be innovative and pushing the boundary as to what outpatient medicine can be. And I I definitely proved that you can safely do this and you can do it rather efficiently with some ROI when you reduce the overhead associated with the traditional uh, primary care model.
0: Interesting. Very cool, man. I mean, Kudos to you for going outside of the box and, and trying. A lot of people don't try mm-hmm. and just yep. got to try stuff, right? I mean, it's the key to yep. figuring it out.
1: Yeah. And I think um, one of the biggest challenges is being a physician entrepreneur. Oftentimes, you have trained for decades and many of us have student loans. I do myself. And mm-hmm. in order to be an entrepreneur, you really need to take the leap and make this your, your company your passion, your full-time effort. And when you are a physician, when you we've been through the system of training and you have all this loans, it's really hard to do that. Yeah. To, to, to say, okay, I'm not going to go for my comfortable outpatient private practice or even work in a community health center with still a pretty comfortable salary to work on this passion of mine that Maybe I have a little capital with feed funding or something like that, or I'm going to try to bootstrap, which you know, I did largely. You know, I was just able, able to cover my costs. But being a physician innovator is really something that I haven't seen the model perfected in my travels across the country and in discussions with other academic medical centers. It's a, it's a tricky thing to, to really be able to support physicians that have these ideas
0: yeah no it's a it's a great call out and so this is a good uh, segue to the question. What's one of the bigger setbacks that you've had, and what did you learn from it?
1: There's so many. Uh, <laughs> I think as you're and maybe I think innovation yeah, yeah or I think working with one of my in my roles, and I experienced it firsthand is mm-hmm. uh, startups trying to work with academic medical centers, especially when they're early stage and trying to, and as we said before, like what, why, or what are the barriers to a lot of these medical centers, even coming up with this really cool clinic and just allowing app development and, and really uh, minimizing patient provider interaction. And, you know, we all know that just academic medical centers can be very slow risk adverse with long sales cycles. So as someone that was trying to build something as a physician entrepreneur who needed relatively quick access to capital or like an MVP or a a pilot, I I was able to kind of pivot and just go do my own thing in this model where I could get directly reimbursed. But there's not a lot of disease processes that would allow allowed me to do that. And every time I try to engage with an insurer or with an academic medical center, it just is conversation after conversation that really goes nowhere. And eventually, really no insurer wanted to partner with a smaller startup right out of the bat that was trying or me that was trying to do something innovative. I would go on phone trees at United Healthcare and I'd try to go to conferences and meet them in person but it was really challenging to go directly into the health system or an insurer. And I think we're seeing that a lot now that I'm kind of on the other side of that. Um, I play both sides. Startups and early digital health companies going straight to private large private practices, you know, these groups owned by private equity firms that have hundreds of physicians that aren't necessarily academic based or that or in the most uh, shiny markets midwest kind of large conglomerate medical groups where change can actually occur a lot quicker and more efficiently in mm-hmm. settings like that and i think i would have if i was bringing out another digital health product or relaunching i would certainly consider trying to find that private setting and uh really make an impact and an impression there first, and then leverage that into uh, further contracts or discussions with insurers and uh, academic centers.
0: That's a great insight. Uh, and listeners, definitely valuable for for us to consider new ideas and how how different hospital systems and and the groups that own them now respond to risk and their appetite for new ideas this private equity model, you know, you guys know that the practices are getting gobbled up by private equity nowadays is a good one to approach and to think about. So big thanks for, for mentioning that, Chris.
1: Yeah. I actually, it's getting, you know, um, I think when you go here, you know, rock health come out with their yeah. most recent numbers and startup health that uh, the digital investment is over last year's already. And it's a entrepreneur's market. I'm starting to see that on my end as an AMC-based innovator that's looking to partner with entrepreneurs. They're becoming really selective regarding who they want to work with because they know if you're going to go with a large AMC, they're going to uh, they're going to require a lot of time and investment on their end. And does it make sense to go with an AMC? And you know, I think we still, as an academic medical center, have a lot to offer. There's a lot that we need to improve on, but a lot of these companies that are well-funded are saying, we're just going to go direct to these provider groups. We're going to try to go direct to consumer and and kind of bypass the AMC at this point.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. So when you were thinking about one of your proudest medical leadership moments, what comes to mind?
1: It's not entirely related to digital health. That's okay. (laughs) As an aside, one time I was on a flight from... Tokyo to Boston. Okay. And there was an in flight emergency. What were you doing we were doing pretty Tokyo? much over the. Just for. I was actually uh, up skiing in, in Hokkaido. Oh, nice. Um, hey, yeah. that's where my wife is from. And, oh, yeah. It's beautiful up there. Gorgeous. It's, it's yeah. really gorgeous. So, yeah, I around three, four hours into the flight, there was a medical emergency. We were over the North Pole because you kind of fly over the arc of the, you know, the Alaska and, and down to yeah. Boston. And uh, I basically ran an ITU in the back of the plane for a good four to five hours uh, until we could land in Winnipeg, Canada. And we got the person off the plane alive. Unfortunately, they passed uh, subsequently. But we really, I I was kind of the leader of this, this group. And we had people from all over the cabin of different backgrounds, people who trained and had some medical training from Asia, to the states, the researchers coming to Boston, and I was able mm-hmm. to really organize this group for hours in a very challenging situation, and the minute that you say, well, what was the most or significant thing from medical leadership that you, you can ever remember, I'll never forget kind of running this situation as the, uh, the, the lead on this flight. That's amazing, man. Um, Good for you. That's yeah.
0: exciting. I mean, sadly, the patient died, is but... Exciting. But yeah. you th- you were there. They could have died on the plane, and you kind of bought them some yeah. extra time yeah. to hopefully make it, right?
1: Yeah, that's how I look at it. Uh, that's awesome. So-
0: you guys ended up landing in Canada because of the situation, or or yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, so we had to you know talk to the pilots and decide if it made sense to go to Chicago. Yeah, or just kind of get down in uh, Winnipeg quickly. And it turns out actually my chief resident in uh when I was training was from Winnipeg and he'd always talk no about the, the the kind of robust uh <laughs> health system in Winnipeg. Uh yeah, like let's go of. there. So I, I told the pilot, <laughs> go there. I I've heard good things about it. That's awesome. But man. then aside from that, you know, I think in terms of leadership is, is great story. doing things that are really progressive and, and not letting a culture necessarily say no. And mm-hmm. I will uh, one of the one simple intervention that we is commoditized at this point, texting with your patients. I was back when I was a uh, first year resident, my leadership didn't like me. I was, or I was a little too uh, cutting edge with my use of technology. No one was even thinking about sending SMS texts to their patients. And, you know, I did all the reading of uh, HIPAA, like 20, 50 times and kind of was like, no, you know what? Getting their permission, I'm doing it via encrypted text message platform. Like it's okay. You know, they didn't want me to do it. And then I continued to do it. And there was this subset of really, really challenging substance abuse, addicted HIV patients that we just couldn't get into clinic. And I started noticing every time I would just start texting them and be, and be, Give them an avenue to text me when when they needed, and obviously we made sure I was like, this is not for emergencies. But you know, if you're feeling down, or if if you, if you just want to chat for a few minutes, like I can send back texts pretty quickly. and Just you know, try to make their day by showing them that I'm I'm engaging in their care yeah. with them. That it's a team. And the amount of no-shows that we had in this group after I started that intervention was I, it was astounding. And it went down. You mean. know,
0: it was. <laughs> excuse me. The amount of no-shows went down. Yeah, uh, like yeah. it was.
1: It was dramatic. So, in terms of leadership, it's when you see something that just doesn't make sense or that's just really counterintuitive, as long as you're you look into the policy and you look into, I'm not really hurting anyone. There's no reason that we shouldn't be doing this. Take the leap and do it. Whether even if you're in an enterprise. Or, you know, much easier to take a leap like that when you're, you know, an entrepreneur in a startup. But, you know, it's important to take the jump while even at a larger enterprise and kind of demonstrate to people that, you know, we have to be a little risky or think outside the box if we're really going to move care forward.
0: Love that, Chris. What an inspiring uh, couple stories you just shared and uh, definitely paving the way for other healthcare practitioners to break outside of the box, to to do things better. Getting close Mm -hmm. to the end here, we've got our lightning round followed by just closing thoughts from you. So let's pretend you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful. Mm -hmm. It's the ABCs of Dr. Chris. And so I've got four questions for you followed by your favorite book, you ready? Okay. All right, what's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes?
1: I think the uh, direct self-insured, the new self-insured payer models a la, you know, Iora Health that are kind of building the relationship right between the employer and the healthcare system and cutting out that largely that middleman is we're seeing the largest amount of rapid cycle innovation and cool things and improvement in care. And I've had the opportunity several years ago to work, to work uh, and do an internship with an IORA practice. And I see that as uh, a huge component of our future.
0: What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid?
1: It's like Donald Trump saying, I didn't realize how uh, complicated <laughs> healthcare was. Yeah. Kind of that. To think that you're going to get anything done with, especially in a larger health system, with any type of speed or without encountering bureaucracy somewhere or someone that's probably going to. Try to maybe not support your efforts as much, they're going to universally, that's going to happen. So don't pretend that there's this kind of perfect marriage uh, between enterprise, startup, or even if it's just a regular kind of established, uh, something like Medtronic or dealing with a, a health system. It's always you know, going to take a lot longer. And it's true that that sales cycle is going to be longer.
0: Totally agree, my friend. And how do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change?
1: That's what drives me every day uh, is trying to think about the five to 10 year strategy and how these new technologies are going to impact the way we practice and clinical care. And um, how do we do that? I think part of it is, and we're doing a little of this at NYU, kind of taking that model of that private practice where I could just do whatever I want and setting up within our clinic one pod or one floor where we can just be disruptive and not be afraid to throw around a completely what would seem just crazy idea or a um, something that's completely antithetical to what we've done in the past and accept that. And I think you can gain a lot of that culture, take some of the good aspects from places like Amazon that really have that culture of like, oh, we made something really cool and no one liked it. Okay, let's move on and not worry about it. And everyone put in a really good effort. That doesn't really exist as much in healthcare culture. And I think creating a, an environment for that is gonna be really important as academic medical centers enter the next uh, decade because no one really knows where we're going with these technologies and where the AMC fits. So I think it's important to be pretty diversified as a health system and be able to then rapidly cycle up with these verticals as, as we see them, what, where the market's kind of going.
0: What's one area of focus that drives everything in your practice?
1: Making sure the patient has the best experience. I would say is still number one for me, obviously having end clinical outcome, but, humanizing the patient is still the most important thing that I need to do on a daily basis. When you get bogged down by insurers and, and, and bureaucracy and additionally, you know, on different tech blogs of, you know, reading about, oh, they're doing this, this, that, and that. But oftentimes it's not touching or hasn't made it down to your average patient. And they they, many patients feel isolated and, and frustrated in our current system because a lot of these cool things that we're talking about haven't happened yet and they're far away off from happening for a, for a large patient population and just to remember that they're human, they're probably struggling at the worst time or a very challenging time of their life and just simple things like having a bit longer of a conversation, making sure that they get that, ginger ale that they've been asking for for three hours that everyone always says, oh, I'll come back and bring it, but actually bringing it, you know, yeah. that's, that's the most important thing to just know that we're all humans in this together with the same common goal. What book would you recommend to the listeners, Chris? I unfortunately don't do a lot of reading outside of healthcare. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. <laughs> um,
0: Our podcast.
1: Yeah, uh, I listen to a ton of podcasts. Whenever someone asks me about digital health and younger physicians, they don't know what digital health is or envision a way to incorporate it into their practice. I always say uh, to get or read Robert Watcher's The Digital Doctor, which I always go back and reference on occasion. Um, and I think it's a really comprehensive and concise view of it's a few years old at this point, but kind of where health technology is today how it's affecting practice and and kind of where it's going to go in the future
0: love that chris folks you could get all the show notes transcript for our interview as well as the syllabus that we just put together for you just go to outcomesrocket.health slash morris m-o-r-r-i-s as dr morris here with us and you'll find all that there Chris, before we conclude, I'd love if you could just share a closing thought and then the best place for the listeners to get in touch with you.
1: So my closing thought would be, in a cliche as it is, uh, you know, that it's certainly a digital health and healthcare in general is a marathon and not a sprint. There may be sprint periods in our efforts, but you can't get bogged down by the long, I mean, if you want to say, just implementation cycles. It definitely gets me down at times. You just want to see care transformed rapidly, but we have to be patient. We have to convince our leaderships that this needs time and that we have to be patient in order to get these new deep learning systems in place that are in a transform care. We have to be patient. We have to give time and we can't view everything as an immediate ROI when we're evaluating new types of interventions because the most important and the best things that, that come in history generally have been given time to percolate and be developed over generally under grant money or, or just time in general. And we've shifted you know a lot of digital health funding into the VC world and into private equity, whereas the basic science is traditionally grant-based, you know, take the time in a lab. Yeah, apply for more funding. But we, we do need to step back and, and just realize that this is going to take time and we have to allow our leadership to understand that.
0: Some great closing thoughts there, Chris. And where can the listeners mm-hmm.
1: follow you or
0: reach out if they want to connect?
1: You can um, hit me up on LinkedIn. I believe it's, if you just LinkedIn, uh, Christopher Morris, MD at NYU. Or uh, my email address is Christopher.Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S, at NYU langone.org Outstanding. We'll
0: provide links to those uh, contact data. And uh, Chris, this has been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Great. Yeah. Have a great weekend. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks for
0: listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast.